Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. This program is about helping you thrive in some of the most challenging coaching situations. Our aim is to support you in bringing your coaching to the next level, whether you're new to coaching or you're already an expert professional. If you're a coach, leader, entrepreneur, leadership development professional, or a human resource manager, this show is for you. Welcome to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Birus, and I am very pleased to interview Javier Bacher. How do you say it in English? Javier Bacher? That's perfect, actually. You said it in Spanish. This is fantastic. Yeah, well, it makes it easier for me. So tell us, Javier, describe yourself and what you do. Thanks so much, Katrina, for, for interviewing me. I describe myself as a cultural architect. What I do is I change cultures, and both the, in the cases of companies, large organizations, and also in the cases of cities around the world. Oh, that's quite an, an impressive uh, endeavor. So tell us, why do you say cultural architect? Architects seem so rigid and cultural so fluid. <laughs> well, this, that's the name that uh, I think it first appeared in The Guardian here in the UK, in the newspaper. Because what I, what I see normally, you know, everybody in business or in governments, they, they talk about the culture of the place, right? How people behave, what they do, why they do what they do, etc. And almost as if the way in which people behave wouldn't change. You know, we have this huge assumption that things are the way they are, and the best we can do is to describe them. And of course, describing something doesn't make it change. I, for the last 20 years of my life and my whole working life, has been looking into how to actually affect a culture and make it change or allow it to change very quickly. And the approach they use is an architectural approach. So it's almost this tension between the softness of human behavior and the rigor of the, the methodologies that we use that are very concrete and they're very applied and measurable. So can you just comment a little bit before we move forward? What is the architecture methodology? Can you just comment on that? Yes. In a nutshell, the way to change a culture is about changing the conversation. So I define culture as the aggregate of all the conversations in a given place, so both formal and informal conversations. So if you want to know what the culture of your company, your business is, the best way to read that is by going and living with people who are actually working, you know, listening. If you could be a fly on the wall, listening to the conversations that happen between people when they go to the water cooler, in the elevator, when two colleagues sit down and have a coffee and what do they talk about? How do they talk to clients? How do they talk to suppliers? How do they talk internally? Those conversations are what hold a culture together. So the approach for me in a nutshell is to influence those conversations so they organically, the culture starts to change. Because one of the things, Katrina, you've probably seen in the past is that people don't change because we tell them to. You know, that's a huge fallacy. And despite the fact that this is obvious, most of us still try, well, I don't do that, but most people still try to change cultures by telling people how to behave. 
So, you know, they come up with a list of values and missions and internal communications campaigns in the hope that if people knew what you want to know, then they automatically will behave accordingly. Human beings don't work like that. You know, if you have children, you would have tried that already a few times and you would have realized that it is not the lack of knowledge that explains a particular set of behaviors. It's something else. So our approach to culture change has to do with changing those conversations very, very quickly without resorting to the very kind of tried and tested communication plans, internal communication plans, which are only creating, in in some cases, more a sense of hypocrisy where humans can actually talk the right talk but actually do something different. You've probably seen organizations that when you walk around a business and you see posters, you know, with the the values or the principles or whatever that is, and then you see the reality of what people think about it and what they do with that, and the gap is enormous. So I, you know, over the years, we have been developing a very concrete architectural approach to changing those conversations in record time. So within about three months, you will start seeing real changes in what people think is important, not because they've been told to say that, but because they're starting to change the way they think about it. So this is quite fascinating, but how in the world do you change a conversation? (laughs) Well, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, We've recently been working with one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. And you would imagine that they naturally have a very strong sense of purpose. Well, in this case, they don't. And the focus was on sales and it was not on anything else, sales and money revenue and and return of equity. And the conversations internally were about money. You know, what do I get, essentially? what, What price would I get if I sell this? What's my next bonus? What's my next career step? And then we realized that we use something called ethnography. So we actually live inside the organization for a few days, undercover in a way, trying to understand what people talk about when they're not being looked at and and, and watched. You know, I became, in this case, I became a salesman. I became a call center operator. I became an admin clerk. And after a few days, it was very, very clear what the value structure was, what the mental models, the mindsets of people, and what was actually reinforcing those. Our interventions had then to do with how do I affect those conversations in a very concrete way? And so, for example, we used nudging as one of the approaches. We started making sure that they could start connecting what they did with the lives that were being saved. So instead of accounting for number of boxes or number of pills that they produce and sell in a given year, we started accounting for number of people healed, number of patients healed, the word patient started to replace the world customers. The customers were the hospitals or the the doctors who prescribed those medicines. And we started creating, uh, influencing the whole conversations by starting to talk about patients and healing which is what in their minds started to, to show up as a stronger sense of purpose and focus on what's important. So the strategies, if I could simplify this, we look at 
32 moments of truth in the connection between an employee and a business. And these are the key moments where those conversations live. Anything from the attraction of a new employee, the induction, the first day at work, the deployment, performance management conversations, the assignment to a new job, a promotion, a feedback cycle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is 32 moments of truth that we have identified over many, many years that we can easily influence in a very subtle way. So in a way, you know, we are the antidote. What we do is the antidote to the traditional change programs that create huge amount of expectations, new promises, lots of internal conversations and lots of meetings, webcast with the new CEO or something like that, that actually don't really deliver a change in the culture and people become more skeptical and cynical about those things. So the way in which we, that we develop this architecture is very subtle, is very pervasive, is in every single moment of truth that you can imagine. And almost without noticing it, people start to change those conversations. So can you comment on the Volkswagen situation where they uh, said that their cars were much more efficient in their emission than they were actually? So their values did not match what they portrayed. Can you comment? What do you, would you advise Volkswagen to do, for example? That's a great question, Katrina. They, see, the case that Volkswagen and many, many other companies uh, at the moment are demonstrating is that the little impact that culture change programs has had over people's behaviors. So I'm sure that everybody within Volkswagen has been heavily trained around working with ethics and integrity and collaborating and transparency and a sense of one, uh, focus on customers, doing the right things, etc., etc. So you, you'll probably see if you got to any business in this world, and even, even non-businesses, you know, governments, people will know what the right thing looks like. Volkswagen engineers knew what right looks like. People at uh, HSBC, people at, you know, all sorts of banks, you can tell, pharmaceutical companies, we know, we have trained people so they are aware of what good looks like. However, there's a very big gap between knowing and doing. And the case of Volkswagen is the, I bet, that the internal conversations, the real culture, not what is in the posters and in the training sessions, not what HR departments or CEOs thought the culture was, but the real culture, what people talk about every day, would have been more coherent with the shortcuts that had been taken in this particular case. Volkswagen is not the only company who has said one thing and done another. I mean, this is one of the biggest problems that we have in today's world, which is we want to do the right things, we say the right things, but when it comes to behaviors, there is a serious shortcut where we seem to be ignoring all the theory and acting on a set of values that have not been written down, which actually apparently look like the right thing to do, but end up getting us into big trouble. So what would Volkswagen, I'm sure they have value systems and everything. So what should they have written down? 
Well, the solution is not to write down, review the values. This is one of the, the biggest mistakes that organizations go through. When they realize that their values don't work because they see people not engaged, people not collaborating, not focusing on their customers, etc. What they do is they go back to the drawing boards, they do an, an away day, they take all the executives away for a, a retreat a, of sorts. <laughs> exactly. In the hope that what they've written now on the new flip charts is the solution. But of course, this, this process will get repeated. It's going to have a sense of deja vu where they will think that the mistake was that perhaps we got the wrong values. And let me say one thing, Katrina. It's never, it's absolutely never a problem of having the right or the wrong values. Human beings want to do the right things to begin with. We all, and I've had work across industries and across regions in the world, I have not seen organizations that want very, very different things. We all want to be uh, profitable. We want to be transparent, work with ethics, collaborate, work as one, you know, give the best, be happy at work and add value to your clients. You can label those in many, many different ways, but essentially we all want the same things. So rewriting the values and reprinting them and running another communication campaign around what we stand for is a complete red herring, is a waste of time. So what should Volkswagen do, for example? So they keep the same values and then? Well, then they need to call us. <laughs> yeah, that, okay. But if they can't call us because our listeners are not Volkswagen, what would you say? What is the first thing that... Uh, is it become with awareness and then change the behaviors that reflect better the values or tell us a little more? Yeah. So, of course, by now, every organization in the planet is already talking about behaviors. So, you know, everybody wants to change behaviors. That's quite common. You know, we, we want to do it individually. We all want to get more sleep, spend more time with our children, get fitter and call our grandmas more than once a week or something like that. We, so we all know what behaviors we would like to, to change. And organizationally, that's very, very clear. We list the behaviors, we write them down, we measure them, we give feedback, and we hope that by doing that, those behaviors will change. But here's the problem. If you look at a human being, behaviors are outputs, they're not inputs. It's that we, we treat behaviors as if they were inputs. And that's the biggest problem that we see in organizations and everywhere else, is behavior is what comes out of you because there's something else happening, which is, are your beliefs. The input is the belief and the output is the behavior, not the other way around. So let me give you a very simple example. We're working with a very large city in the world around changing the culture of the citizens. In this particular case, one of the objectives is to get people to drive more carefully as they go through villages and, and towns, because that's where the biggest number of accidents occur. Putting a sign that says 50, with you know maximum speed, is attempting to change the behavior, right? So most people will actually go and add a camera on top of the sign because we want to control the behaviors. This is again using the very old sticks and carrots approach to changing behaviors. What happens with the average driver? The average driver will notice the camera, will slow down, will pass the sign, will pass the camera, 
below 50 because they don't want to get a ticket. And as soon as they consider it safe for them to speed up, they will. Once you see the camera on your, on your mirror, you are telling yourself you're very smart, you've done very well, you avoided being caught on, on camera and getting a ticket, and life continues. That's a typical example, although it's a bit metaphorical, but you know the same thing applies to any business, of changing behaviors rather than changing beliefs. If I want to change authentically the behavior of that individual, I need to make focus on the beliefs that are going on, not the behaviors that he or she is showing us. Understanding that humans want to do the right things, and most of us will want to do that, and we'll keep sticks and carrots for the outliers, and there's always going to be a few outliers, but using those old motivational techniques for people who will need a, a tougher management. But for most of us, if you change my belief, my behavior will organically and sustainably emerge naturally from me. Can you give an example of a changing belief? Like, for example, the driver. What belief might he have and what, how should he change that belief to drive slower? Well, in, in this particular case, what we have done in the city, we're piloting this now with amazing results. We're having pictures taken of the school kids of that village, right? And if you imagine a poster, a good-sized poster, with all the kids in a group and you know, hugging each other and looking, no, looking lovely at the entrance of that village. And, and we put a sign that says, there is 137 of us, right? Or something like that. When a driver drives through there and you actually, and we do some ethnographic work, so we sit next to drivers and see what they think and they, what they share. One of the things that you're starting to see is a real change in their beliefs. And because of those beliefs being changed, the behaviors automatically change as well. So they will slow down. Why? Well, because they're believing, they're not realizing, gosh, there's lots of kids and they're starting to think about the children. They're not thinking about the ticket or how much it's going to cost them. We want to change that conversation from it's all about me and the government and see who is smarter and who's going to smart out the other person. And we're getting into a conversation about children. About children, the purpose of safety, of uh, projecting their children onto the posters, and you're giving them a role of safely driving through the village and, and taking care of these kids. It's a higher purpose, as you said earlier. Correct, correct. So I'm appealing to something that is inside human beings. I'm not asking for a favor, like please slow down, because that creates a mental construct that is entirely wrong. That's assuming that I don't care. And of course I care. Every single driver, or most drivers, let's say not every single one, but most of us will care. I just want to, to help somebody adopt their behaviors to an environment that is requiring that adaptation. What do I do? I change the conversation. And what happens? Well, naturally, they will, you know, if you knew I mean, people do this naturally. If you see those kids running around, you will slow down. Nobody would ever dare speed up. So, and this is a very simple example, obviously taking from some of the work we're doing in cities. But the same thing applies to a call center or customer relationship. If somebody, if I can help somebody connect with their beliefs about what's going on as they sell an insurance policy, 
as they open a bank account, as they support somebody in a, in a service center of some sort, at a supermarket, if I can help the employee change their mindset, changing their beliefs, I can assure you that you'll be surprised but the, the, how automatically they will collaborate, they will innovate, they will go the extra mile, they'll create empathy, because all those things are innate in human beings. Of course, through what we've done for the last 30 years or so, we have been taking those things away. Javier, you, these examples are fabulous. So give us some more examples of how you change beliefs, like, for example, to help companies be more customer-oriented. But I think it's a lovely example for me. Two years ago, we were asked to work with a very, very large insurance company. They're about to close their operations in the U.S. And uh, the argument was, because we've been buying different companies and they, they were like a, almost like a conglomerate, huge, very, very large of smallish companies, they've been acquiring companies like crazy. The culture was a mess. The culture was very inward looking. Everybody was looking after their own success and their own place in the organization. Very siloed, very selfish. You know, I remember now, I, you know, when we do the ethnographic work, I actually went uh, dressed down and I became an insurance salesman. So I went with a bunch of people to be trained, which was quite funny. They had no idea what I was doing. And in informal conversations, and this was in the Midwest in the U.S., they were sitting down having coffee, and I said, so what's this about? And every answer they gave me was about them. It was about how cool it was to work in this company because of what they got. And there's a fundamental difference here, Katrina, between thinking about what I'm going to get versus thinking what I'm going to give. And that affects the quality of my relationship with what I do in life. So in this case, it was all about what they would get. And they were trying to sell it to me that this is cool. And I said, but how about what you sell? How about, you know, your relationship with customers? And they said, oh, Javier, you just need to realize we sell insurance. We are in a dirty business. And I thought, how interesting. So that's the mental model. This is a dirty business. And therefore, because of that, I'll try to survive in the best possible way. Pay me more give me more promotions, give me a brand new car every three years, and I'll be happy. And therefore, I'll go into compensation mode. I think this is what we end up calling salaries, compensation. What are we compensating for? We're compensating for the lack of connection with what they are actually giving to society. So just to tell the story short, we needed for thousands of people to think of customers in a very different way. Now, I won't tell you all the, the different interventions that we took over a few months, but the biggest change there is that now, if you ask any of their employees around the U.S., essentially, that's where we work, tell me what you do, they will say, I help people sleep well at night. Yeah, I see. Tell me more about it. Well, and they will tell the story that we created through all the conversations that we affected, where they will say, you know, we live in a world of uncertainty, don't we? And they'll give you one or two examples of how the world that we live in today is packed with uncertainty. Well, for people to be able to have a better quality of life, we outsource the uncertainty for money, of course, and we make money through that. But our job, our business is to take their worries away so they can sleep at night. Businesses can invest 
fathers can leave their homes knowing that when they come back, you know, the house is protected, people's health is protected, people can take risks, invest, try new things, go places, because we exist. Now, is that a lie? Absolutely not. You know, I'm sure you have lots of insurance for different things, and we take it for granted. But it's not. I mean, thanks to that, people can function out there. We outsource our worries. We know that if anything bad happened, there will be somebody looking after us. You know, I won't lose my car. I won't lose my, my indemnity. I won't lose my house, my health, etc. Right, I understand. So now what changed is the conversation. People are passionate about it. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful example, a very good example. Tell us, you have received the top award for the C40 for your work in the city of Buenos Aires. Can you tell us about what is the C40 and what you did there? Well, it, it's not just my award. I mean, we worked in a, in a, with a very large team to make that happen. But in this particular case, as I said, you know, I, I, we do a lot of work with large corporations and with large cities as well, which is becoming now more and more my, my passion. You see, how do we change the culture or the behaviors of millions of people rather than thousands or tens of thousands? And um, the C40 is a non-governmental organization that gathers the largest, 40 largest cities in the world. I think they're uh, c40.org is their website. And um, we presented uh, one of the projects that we run with the city, the mayor of Buenos Aires. Um, uh, this was last year. And we won the top award. And, and the, the challenge that we had culturally was that the city of Buenos Aires was in serious trouble because they needed to find a new place for their rubbish something that we take for granted here in the UK, and I'm sure that you do in, in, in Switzerland as well. You know, the people who lived in Buenos Aires and the previous two generations didn't have an awareness that rubbish was a problem because rubbish was piled up somewhere and that never was a problem. Or it was burned up in incinerators in people's buildings. The issue was that that was no longer an option, of course, as you, as you can imagine. You couldn't pile up any more rubbish. And the only way forward was to get everybody within the city of Buenos Aires, you know, businesses and individuals, to start to separate residues of rubbish at source, something that we, we really take for granted everywhere. And, of course, they've done the typical campaigns. They tried to regulate it. They tried to enforce it. They did a lot of posters and advertisements, etc., saying, you know, please separate Here's the green bag. Here's the black bag. This is what goes here. This is what you need to do. We was all talking about behaviors. Now, consequence of that, nothing had changed. So you only had the outliers of people who were very green, very pushy. The majority of the people who said, this is not my problem. This is somebody else's problem. They never had this as an issue. And then some people who would not change regardless of whatever you do to them. And what we realized after living in the environment for a bit and doing my ethnographic work, I remember being a neighbor. So I just walked uh, into uh, around people's streets and stuff like that and chatting with people and the neighbors and getting into people's houses and having tea and stuff like that and realizing that the mental model that they have around rubbish was that this is not an issue. And we created a program 
which was um, very, very successful. So that took about 12% of the people used to separate rubbish at source, and it went up in about a year to 85%. So that got us the, the top award of the C40 organization for the, the behavioral change that was seen, quite measurable, actually, in the city of Buenos Aires. Just a, a little side comment, which is, um, I love to, to share this because it was, a, it was a lovely approach that the team discovered for this one, which is, how do you change the conversations of about 3 million people who live there and another 3 million who come in from the provinces every day? And we realized, of course, the last thing we want to do is become do what, what we know doesn't work, which is you know, another, another campaign. Uh, people don't like to be told what to do, neither in organizations nor in cities. So how do we subtly nudge people into changing the belief system so that their behaviors change? And what we did is we realized that because most people live in buildings, in tall buildings, every building has a porter, we created this, it's an excuse really, of certifying the porters as green porters. So we had little vans from the city that would pick up the porters, give them uh, free lunch, show them around the recycling centers, get a new mental model in their belief system which was about understanding what happens with how much rubbish every single human being in the city of Buenos Aires produces per day and where that goes and what are the consequences, etc. And my rule was that in none of these programs, we will tell them what to do. So I asked all the trainers, all the communicators, everybody to not talk about what behaviors we were asking them to change. We just were interested in changing their beliefs. We did the same thing by training taxi drivers, because a lot of people use taxis in, in the city of Buenos Aires. And what do taxi drivers do? Of course, they talk in the journey. They're very chatty. Same as the porters. And we chose the porters because they have two contact moments per day, per person who lives in those buildings. You know, when they leave the building, they chit chat with the porter. And when they come back, there's a chit chat. We give the porters a, a lapel, a little sign. So we triggered a conversation between the neighbor and the porter and they would say what is that john well you know i've just been to this amazing experience let me tell you about it do you know how much rubbish we produce do you know what we're so all those conversations started to occur we obviously work with children in school because we believe that kids have an enormous capacity to create conversations at home and we also work with hairdressers for some reason the city of buenos aires has one of the largest proportion of women hairdressers as compared to other cities. I don't ask me why. And what uh, most hairdressers do is they talk. So we thought, okay, listen, either we're going to get you through when you go to a hairdresser or when you come back and you talk to your husband, or we're going to get you when you enter or leave your building or when your kids come back from school or when you take a taxi. We want to have a conversation about why this is important. And by the way, here are your two bags. Here's a green one, here's a black one. Do your part. And this is why a 12% reaction went to up to 85% without having to use sticks or carrots to change people's behaviors. Very interesting. We're coming at the end of our interview for TimeWise, unfortunately. So I want to ask you, what tip or resource can you share with our listeners? And what is your address for your website? Well, I mean, a couple of tips. The first one is don't spend time changing behaviors. Look at beliefs, 
that's a very concrete thing, which is enormous. I run a, a weekly blog, and you can find that in javierbacher.com, which is my site. My intention with that is to create a community, a global community of people who want to create change in their organizations or anywhere they want, and as a way of giving them tools and arguments and actually creating a conversation that they can take on in their own organizations to create change that is credible, is sustainable, and is not just this thing that we think we're doing when we actually talk about change but don't do it. So uh, obviously I would, I would love for anybody to be fed weekly by this blog and, and have a conversation with myself and the teams and with each other, of course, because we do need to make this world a better place. And we, we have to stop having these empty phrases and empty promises that have already demonstrated that they are no value. And we keep on repeating them because we feel that there's nothing else that we can do. There is a different way. There is a possible way to change humans' behaviors. And uh, I'm very happy to help in that journey. Thank you very much, Javier. So your website is Javier Bajer, right? That's correct. J-A-V-I-E-R-B-A-J-E-R.com. Great. Thank you. I encourage our listeners to go check it out and to read your blog. Thank you very much, Javier. Those are very interesting. Katrina, thank you so much for, for the opportunity. And I will continue to listen to your conversations okay. that keep me very, very interested week after week. Thank you, Javier. Thanks for listening to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. You can subscribe to all future podcasts at excellentexecutivecoaching.com and sign up for monthly newsletters featuring all the latest tips and techniques to bring your coaching to the next level. Join us again soon. And until then, bye for now.